Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante, and whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, I want to thank you for choosing to spend your time with me and our guests here on Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, now more than ever in this turbulent time, it's important to share and spread our message of freedom and fulfillment around the globe. So if you get value from this podcast, I have a favor to ask. If you could go wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a positive rating and review, that helps us carry our message further around the globe. And if you wouldn't mind, Post a link to this podcast on your Facebook page. Share it on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, wherever you're at on social media. I want to thank you for helping us take our message to those people around the globe who truly need it. And I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. Thank you. There is no reality except as we perceive it. There's no United States, there's no Russia, there's no religion, there's no culture, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. What does the word freedom mean to you? Only you can define it in your life and only you can decide to build the life of freedom and fulfillment you deserve. This is Freedom Mindset Radio. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante, and we're grateful you're here. Well, we are live, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another incredible interview on the Freedom Media Network. When we return, we are going to have a discussion with an economic hitman. Well, thank you today. Our guest today is John Perkins. He is the author of the best-selling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and the 2016 update, New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. His latest book is Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World. As chief economist at a major international consulting firm, John advised the World Bank, United Nations, IMF, U.S. Treasury Department, Fortune 500 companies and leaders of countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. The first edition of Confessions of an Economic Hitman spent 73 weeks on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list and has been translated into 30 two language, languages. <laughs> the 2016 update brings the story of economic hitmen and jackal assassins up to date and chillingly home to the U.S. Goes on to provide practical strategies to transform the failing global death economy into a regenerative life economy. John's also founder and board member of Dream Change and the Pachamama Alliance, nonprofit organizations devoted to establishing a world future generations will want to inherit. And both of those organizations we're going to talk about today, they're big parts of your book. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Kurt. I'm very honored to be on your show. Thank you. Yeah, honored to have you here. And, you know, so this is Freedom Mindset Radio. We're on the Freedom Media Network. The first question I ask all my guests, and it's so interesting hearing the answers to this, is that word freedom. What does that word freedom mean to you? You know, it's fascinating that you'd bring that up because I'm not usually asked that question, but I had an English teacher in, in high school, it's my sophomore year, who, who had a huge influence on my life. His, his name was Richard Davis. I talk about him in some of my books. And he was big on freedom. And he, you know, we, he taught a lot of, uh, he taught Emerson and Thoreau, went back to that, and then more recent people, and, and uh, Tom Paine. And one of the things that he ingrained in his students and, and has always made an impression on me is there's really two kinds of freedom. There's freedom from and there's freedom for. And sometimes you have to be freedom from before you can be freedom for. But ultimately, it's not just enough to be freedom from. 
It's got to be freedom for. And, and so I think actually I think that this coronavirus is, it gives us a great example. We we'd like to be freedom from this virus, but I think it's it it, it, it it's it's almost a waste of our energy and time and all the all the all the stuff we've gone through around this virus if we don't actually see that also as freedom for to realize that this virus is telling us that we've got to change and giving us the opportunity and in fact forcing people to make huge changes in their lives temporarily we need to make huge changes in our lives permanently not necessarily the same ones we're making but this virus gives us the opportunity to look at what it means to have freedom for freedom to move from a failing global governmental social economic system that economists are calling a death economy into a better system, what we call a life economy. We can talk about that more later if you yeah, want. Absolutely. But, so I think we're, we're at a time where we need to look at both freedom from and freedom for. And the virus, of course, is just one example. We've also got a similar example with all the issues over race, white privilege, police brutality. How do we get freedom from that oppression and move into a freedom for some better view of the world. And you, um, you know, in your book, The Adventures Taking You from the Middle East to, of course, Ecuador, which you write about a lot, um, uh, Colombia, uh, and, and here in the United States, you were flying high in, in even some of these, these countries, uh, staying in the nicest of hotel rooms. So you've seen it up there, but you've also seen it thatched huts. Right. Uh, you've had ayahuasca ceremonies with shamans and you've seen really the, the 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 all ends of the spectrum when it comes to how we live our lives. And you talk a lot about materialism and with this virus, I, I think. And, and, and I'd like your thoughts on this. People who attached meaning in their lives and I use meaning in quotes to material stuff and all of a sudden this virus hits and we feel like maybe the material stuff is threatened. A lot of people out of work, businesses threatened and all those things. People who have attached meaning to stuff, as you and I have had great experience doing, probably were in more of a panic than those who attached meaning to something deeper in their lives. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things the, the, the virus is showing us is that, uh, Material stuff doesn't bring us happiness. Uh, you know, I mean, just speaking for myself, I, I live a pretty frugal life, really. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a very small house here. I've come from a large house, and the woman I lived with for 10 years, she, she had another large house, but now we live in a house that's, that's less than 1,800 square feet, you know, and we love it. We have forests outside. Uh, but we always, you know, we loved going to restaurants periodically. And still, I want to support local restaurants when I can, but we've been eating at home a lot recently and found that it's a wonderful adventure. You know? <laughs> how, many, how many ways can you prepare an organic meal at home? <laughs> and and, and we're, set, we're, we're vegetarians. And um, just, you know, ha ha having more time with each other. Um, and there's so much, so many other things that, that we're, people across the world are, are experiencing that, that it's, it, in, in a way, this is freedom from that stuff mentality. And when you look at the death economy that I talked about, it, it's based on, so, our, you know, one of the things the shamans taught me is that our reality is molded by our perceptions. There is no reality except as we perceive it. There's no United States, there's no Russia, there's, 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 there's no religion, there's no culture. 
there's no economy, there's no corporations except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. And this uh, this death economy is, is based on a perception that the goal of businesses should be to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. The goal of individuals is basically to maximize short-term desires, particularly the materialistic ones. And this um, this uh, this virus is teaching us that, that maybe we've got to move move, move away from that. And, and it's about time. We, I mean, we shouldn't need a virus to teach us these things, that we've got to move into a more successful system. At the same time, Kurt, and I'm sorry I'm talking too much. No, please. Hey, that's, it's your, you're on. <laughs> but at the same time, all the, the issues around race, around white privilege, around police brutality, they, they are coming up because... We haven't distributed our, our material wealth, which includes food and, and housing and the essentials of life, in a fair way. That there's three individuals in the United States who have as much wealth as half the population of the United States. And then there's a whole lot more that have an awful lot more wealth than, 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 than the majority of people. And that it's, it's very unfair, the distribution, racially speaking. And, and so... So, of course, materialism, we all depend on having food and clothing and, and, and shelter. And when a few people have a lot more of that than others, it causes a tremendous uh, unbalance. And nature doesn't like unbalances. Uh, we know that. And we don't like unbalances like that. And that's coming clear. So you've got these two aspects around consumption. And, and you know, you mentioned the book, Touching the Jaguar. And, you know, I'm always touching the Jaguar here. I'm, <laughs> nice. Love it. <laughs> but. That's what it's all about. It's, you know, the subtitle is transforming fear into actions to change your life and the world. And a lot of the, all, all, so much of, of our actions are driven by fear, fear of something. Often it's just plain fear of change. The uh, I mentioned to you before we, we got online here that I had read Confessions years ago. Uh, and then I, I, I reread it, but well, I read uh, New Confessions last week via audiobook. At the same time, I was reading Touching the Jaguar. And really, it's, it's, it's kind of all one book because Touching the Jaguar, you go in deeper on many of the adventures you had in, uh, uh, that you kind of touch over in, new conf- in Confessions and New Confessions, but also start talking about the perceptions and the perception bridge. Um, but kind of setting the stage for how you move to where you are now, um, can you let our viewers, those of you who are not familiar or haven't read the book, Economic Hitman, what does that mean? What is an economic hitman and what did you do? Well, my actual title was chief economist at a major international consulting firm. I had a staff of anywhere from 30 to 50 people at various times. My job really as an an economic hitman, chief economist, was to uh, convince, to, to identify countries that had resources that corporations want, like oil, and then convince the leaders of those countries uh, to t- accept huge loans from the World Bank and, and other United Nations, United States uh, controlled organizations. Uh, but the money didn't go to the countries. Instead, it was used to, it, it paid our corporations. It gave them huge profits, in fact, to build big infrastructure projects in those countries. Things like electric power systems, industrial parks, ports, airports, roads, things that ultimately made our made our companies rich, but also uh, helped a few rich families in those countries. That's the equivalent of the three in the United States who have as much wealth as half the population. 
and at the beginning, I, I thought I was doing the right thing because in business school, you're taught and you can look at all the economic models, all the mathematical company econometric models, and, and it shows that when you make these kinds of investments, the GDP, which we use as the me measure of national prosperity, increases. And so we're taught this, and, 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 and I believe that this was the case. But over time, I began to see that those statistics are, are basically totally skewed in favor of the wealthy. GDP is not a measure of overall prosperity. It's a measure of, of, of how the rich are doing, the ones who produce the goods and services that, that are reflected there. So while these loans, these huge loans, were helping the rich in those countries, they were diverting money to, to pay off the interest on the loan from education, healthcare, and other social services. And so the majority of the people were actually suffering. And, and it took me a long time uh, to realize that but, but over time, I began to realize that, and then I was kind of caught in a trap of being in a, in a, in a job where I got a lot of perks, a lot of first-class travel, and, and, uh, and a very good salary, and so forth. But yeah, I think that, so the job of the economic hitman, basically, is to use this, use a perception, here we go back to perception, use a perception that these loans are going to help these countries, and in the end, the countries could never pay off the loans. And so, so we go back in and then say, well, well, we'll restructure the loan under the guise of the International Monetary Fund, but you've got to sell your, your resource, your oil, whatever, real cheap to our corporations and, and a lot of other conditions. And, and but the, so the perception was being created. I was helping to create the perception that taking these loans would help the country and created a reality, which was basically a colonialism a global colonialism where we were colonizing these countries and there's some of their own leaders were colonizing them also uh, and in the process you know what kurt we were we were colonizing ourselves too because most people in the united states think that those loans are helping those countries and many people object to that they say why should, why should the united states be helping ecuador colombia indonesia um in any of these countries you know why should we be doing this the fact of the matter is we're not we're helping our own corporations to the, for the most part. There are some exceptions, but the overall, the biggest driving force is to help our own corporations and our own economy to spread this colonialism, this, this, this type of corporate imperialism. And, and, and you make it pretty clear in your book. I mean, you, you uh, uh, well, in, in confessions and, and the new confessions that this is a, this isn't a partisan thing. I mean, you're pretty, you go into pretty great detail about, People's of, people of both parties, you call it the corporatocracy where you have these large corporations working at the, well, I don't know who's working at the behest of whom, with our government, the U.S. government, but also these, the World Bank IMF, you get these companies hooked up to the IV, right, of, of, of loans and debt, and they either sign on or don't sign on, and if they get to the point where they're thinking for themselves, then the economic hitmen step back and what you call the jackals are set in. Now, what's a jackal? Well, that's the, the euphemism, I guess you'd call it, that we use for uh, people, usually CIA assets, uh, who go into a country and, and assassinate the leaders or, or take them out in a coup if they don't play this game with us. 
And unfortunately, you know, we've, the United States has been very involved in that, and we've admitted to it. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, and many others have admitted to the fact that the CIA was deeply involved in the overthrow and the, and the death of, of Salvador Allende, of Chile, and Arbenz, of Guatemala, and La Lumba of the Congo, and, and Mossadegh of Iran, and Ziem of Vietnam, and on and on. Most recently, in 2009, Zelaya of Honduras. And, and so leaders know that... Let me reach for, let me start that differently. Let me say that I knew that I had a pretty easy job for the most part because I had all these fancy reports that created this impression, this perception that taking these loans would help these countries. But I also knew I could go to a leader and I could say, hey, you know, in this hand, I've got, in today's terms, it would be billions of dollars for you and your family. You're going to make a lot of money if you take this on. And if you decide not to, in this hand, I got a gun. You know, I didn't actually have a gun, but I and never was involved in that. But I knew there were people behind me, the ones we call the jackals. And these presidents are very, very aware of what happened. And as you know, from the book, two of my clients, the democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, the country where I'd been a peace caller, volunteer and became a client of mine, and, and Omar Torrijos of Panama, uh, were both taken down in, in uh, private plane crashes that they were in separately. Um, there's no question in most uh, observers' minds, and no, very little question in my mind, that these were, these were assassinations. It's never been proven. There's no smoking gun, because the um, thing about a plane crash is that uh, the smoking gun goes up in smoke, so to, <laughs> right. so to speak. Um, but that we have a long, long history of this. And so leaders of, of, of countries are extremely aware of the vulnerable position they're in. The um, real quick on perceptions, going back to talking about perceptions, and, and you write about this in the book. And I believe, do, do you, did you, are you uh, a, a descendant of Tom Paine, Thomas Paine? Yes. 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 That's a, you mentioned Thomas Paine. And you talk about growing up with that feeling of patriotism. And as you go through many of the people you just mentioned, the, the notion was that these were communists. It was, it was by us doing this, it was us versus the Soviet Union, you know, in the eighties. And in many cases they weren't, they were not communists. They were, they were no more communists than, than attached to the United States. Right. And, but, but it's a, it's part of a, a large PR campaign by the corporatocracy to make us all believe here that we were, being righteous in what we were doing. Right. Yeah. So so what these presidents did have in common, the Roldos and Torrijos, was that they they didn't want they didn't want to buy into these deals. Uh, and Roldos in Ecuador was clamping down on oil companies. He was saying, you know, the oil companies uh, owe, owe the Ecuadorian people some percentage of the wealth they're making off our resources. And at that time, the, the contracts were set up so the oil companies weren't paying anything back to Ecuador. They were just going into the jungles, uh, the, rain, the Amazon rainforest, and destroying it and killing people. And, and actually, there's a huge lawsuit. Uh, uh, Stephen Donzinger, who's, who's going to be on a program with me on Friday, if any of your listeners want to, want to, want to, want to hear Stephen's side, he's the lawyer who won a, a $9.5 billion lawsuit against Texaco that Texaco is refusing to pay. But so, um, so, so all of this was was going on at that uh, you know at that time that we're looking at how do you, these how do you rape the country of its resources and create the impression at the same time that you're doing them a favor. Uh, 
And so I was in Ecuador as a Peace Corps volunteer in 1968 when Texaco first started coming in. And I, like everybody else in the, who was in the country at the time, thought, well, Ecuador is basically living in the Dark Ages, which in those those years, it was very backward country in terms of how we think of uh, civilization these days. Right. And, and the idea was that the Texaco, that oil was going to bring everybody out of that. And it's this, it's this impression that's created. Uh, it's this perception that's created. And it's a faulty perception. And in fact, it, 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 you know, the, the, some of the money from oil was used to do good things for some people. But the fact of the matter is it destroyed vast areas of the Amazon. Children are still being born with, with cancer and deformities and all kinds of things in that area. Texaco has never cleaned it up, even though they've been told they've been forced by law to do it. But they don't adhere to the Ecuadorian laws, and they've taken all their assets out of Ecuador. So it's, it's, just, it's an old story. You know, it's an old story of, of empire building. And, and this current empire that I was involved in is, in a way, it's more of a corporate empire than an American empire, but but the U.S. government backs it. And as you pointed out, my family goes back to before the American Revolution. I'm a very loyal American. Uh, my family's fought in every war that America has been involved in up until, until Vietnam. And But I see that we've made big mistakes. And my job, I think, is to point those out so that we can change them and so that we can be a leader in this transformation. And you held up the book, The New Confessions. I want to hold up the, the, the new one. Yep. Oh, yeah. I love this yep. I got it right here. Yeah. <laughs> the subtitle there, you know, transforming fear into action to change your life and the world. And, you know, that's 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 where we're at right now. We've got to recognize that we have created a system that just plain isn't working anymore. This plan isn't working, and we need to turn it around. If you consider all the crises we're facing, so right now we've got the corona pandemic, we've got um, you know all the the, the the racial unrest, the 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 inequality. If you look at climate change, if you look at species extinctions, if you look at most all of our problems. They are problems, but they're not the problem. They're not the disease. They're symptoms of a disease, and that disease is this global death economy that's based on the goal of maximizing short-term profits regardless of the environmental and social costs. Human beings have never lived that way until relatively least recently, out of the 250,000 or so years where we've been seeing ourselves as humans on this planet, We've always wanted to protect our children and grandchildren and create a better world until now. And now the whole thing is, you know, maximize the short term. And if you, oh, if you want to help your children, just send them to a really good college or something like that. But what, what the heck, what, what good does a great education do if there's no good, no air to breathe? <laughs> it, it, you bring up the, the current turbulence in our society. And and whether it's COVID, it, it, it seems like it's really hit hard here. Uh, I had a feeling last year that something was going to happen. And I didn't know what. I just had this feeling. Um, and luckily, we made some financial moves that have, have protected us a bit. But you look at, it, it, as I was reading New Confessions, um, and, and, and a lot of this is perception, and maybe there were a lot of things that you wrote about in New Confessions that, Mossadegh and Kermit Roosevelt going in and starting riots to overthrow. And there were things that I've seen from a corporatocracy point of view over the last several months, three or four months, that as I read New Confessions, 
for me, drew a line between, you know, we see outside agitators, Russia, China, others getting involved with turning protests in some cases into riots, that the it's not even uh, the people who are protesting the injustice that are people are getting caught from out of state, Facebook groups being organized by overseas uh, entities. And the I'm not a Trump guy. I, I don't know where you stand on it. But as I left my place in the corporatocracy, it was right around the time that he was getting elected. I noticed a bipartisan, uh, basically unity against him of corporations, didn't like him, uh, people, kind of the bureaucracy who had been in D.C. forever. You know, no matter who gets elected, there's that layer that's always there. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Do, do you think there's a connection? And I want to be clear here, not between protests and racial unrest and 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 rage and anger over everything that you just talked about. And I'm not saying there's no virus, but in terms of a fire burning and entities, and you write about China, Russia, uh, you know, we know they've been tracking bots and social media to fan the fan flames, but do you think the corporatocracy is somehow playing a role in what's going on right now in terms of messing with some of our perceptions? I mean, I, I've just seen some, having worked within it and in healthcare and being in the big pharma stage and seeing some of the things that have happened over the last three or four months and censorship and, and types of things, anyone who has a different opinion, as I read the book, I'm like, man, you know, if I, if, maybe it's a conspiracy theory, but I'm just thinking, is some of this being fueled by the corporatocracy that you write about? Well, that's a really complex question. And it requires an awful lot of speculation with it. I really don't like to do. I like to talk about things that I really yeah. know about. Um, I, what, what I do know, and, and I, I, I not long ago, I was teaching at an MBA program, a master's of business administration program in Shanghai, China, to, to Chinese students. They were all Chinese students, and they were all members of the Communist Party, and they all spoke English. <laughs> and I got to know them really, really well. And they are determined to, to be the number one country in the world. There's no question about that. Um, there's no question about that. And, and they're, they're headed in that direction. And let's face it, the United States has made terrible mistakes since the end of, of the Soviet Union, 1991. The Soviet Union dissolved, detente, and we had an opportunity to really spread a, a beautiful form of democracy and a, a good form of capitalism around the world, but we did the opposite. We created a lot of problems around the world. And, and now the Chinese are coming in and pointing this out, and people in Latin America and Africa, the leaders are buying into the Chinese message. And, but at the same time, these young people in China, who there's no question, they want those resources from those countries. No question. And they want to, yeah, and they and the Russians will do what they what they can to undermine our system to, to up to a point for, for sure. I think they all want to avoid war. And uh, it, but a difference here is that it seems to me that we continue to put huge amounts of money in the United States into aircraft carriers and, and missiles and and while those countries are putting their efforts into cyber attacks, 
Yeah. <laughs> Cyber defense. And the reason why we keep putting into military is that every state in the United States gains from military investments. Every state has some sort of an operation that's dependent on pen- Pentagon budget. So every every politician in every state is always pushing to get more money from that from that source into his or her state. So so it's a system, it's a rigged system that way. But it isn't it isn't it isn't it isn't really looking at the problem. The, the issue today is around cybernetics and AI. It's not about aircraft carriers. Um, so, but at the same time, I want to say that these students in China, I stayed after I finished my teaching gig and for a while and hung out with many of them on a much more personal basis. And I kept hearing from them, Kurt, they would say like, you know, we've created an, an economic miracle in this country, China. Uh, we're the only country in the history of the world that's had tripled, uh, double-digit economic growth for, for three decades. It's ended now, but that's true. We did. Yeah. They said it came at a terrible price socially and environmentally. We get it. We know that. So, but we've proven we can create a miracle. So we, the new generation, who are in this business school now, we're determined that in the long run we're going to create a, a, an environmental and social a miracle. We're going to become the greenest country on the planet. Well, will they do it? I have no idea. Were they sincere when they expressed this to me? I'm to- I'm totally believe they were. You know, we were drinking beers together, we we're having a great time, and they're telling me this stuff in all seriousness. So I think it's it's important that we try to look at um, the situation in the world, whatever's driving it. <laughs> right now, but we try to look at the reality that we've made huge mistakes and our corporations have made huge mistakes. And are they now trying to somehow, you know, to, to, to convince us to stay the course, to stay in the status quo? Don't, don't, don't let this coronavirus, don't let these, these demonstrations convince you to trace. Yes, of course, because we are going through a, a consciousness revolution. Make no mistake about it. All over the world. I'm in China. I'm in Russia. I'm in Latin America. And wherever I go, all over the United States, I see that people are waking up to the fact that we, we're the pilots of a space station, the Earth. And it's a very fragile space station that we're driving it toward disaster. We've got to change course. We're the pilots. We're, we're guiding this whole thing. And people around the world are waking up to that. At whenever there's a revolution, like a like this consciousness revolution, history tells us whenever there's any kind of a revolution, the people who represent the status quo, the Donald Trumps of the world, uh, and, and 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 basically most of our politicians, Democrat and Republican alike, but Donald Trump certainly has taken this to a, a, a level that nobody's ever anticipated before, and it's doing the opposite of making America great. And everybody around the world sees that, or most everybody around the world sees that. But those people who represent the status quo throughout history have always tried to stop the revolutions. And the revolutionaries, or let's call ourselves agents of, agents of change, because this, this is a consciousness revolution. It isn't a revolution that's going to be won with guns. It's a consciousness revolution that's going to be won by changing perceptions. And the, those involved, the agents of change, take strength from the kickback by the status quo. We're like, we need to be like good martial artists who know that they're stronger than us. They're bigger, they're stronger. They get the weapons. They can go out in the streets with their police with all kinds of gear on that protects them from all the, all the crap they throw at the demonstrators. They're stronger that way. But 
and you don't fight strength in martial arts. You don't, the guy's a lot bigger than you and stronger than you. You don't try to overpower him. You use his energy. You turn it around and you learn techniques for using it against him. And, the, and revolutions that have been successful throughout history, whether they're revolutions like the American Revolution or the French Revolution, or, or whether the revolutions of the mind like the Enlightenment Revolution, uh, it's, they're always faced with confrontation, with status quo, and they always, the ones that are successful, always learn to take, take that as, 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 as confirmation that they're winning, that the status quo is afraid. And so, so, so to use that, turn that around, to use that energy against them or for yourself. So let's just say freedom for Sure. Right. Yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Kurt Mercadante, and I want to thank you for being a loyal listener to Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, in this chaotic time of coronavirus chaos, it's so important for people to have a process to define, create, and live their lives of freedom and fulfillment. I lay out just that process in my Amazon bestseller, Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. And in light of this turbulent time, I've dropped the Kindle price of my book to $4.50. That's a more than $2 drop in price. I do this because I truly believe that this is a process that will help those who need freedom and fulfillment now. Perhaps it's you. Perhaps you have spent the past five years, 10 years, 15 years trading away your freedom and fulfillment for a false sense of security and a toxic job and a lifestyle that doesn't fulfill you. And now you're realizing that security was an illusion and you want your freedom now. Go to fivepillarsoffreedom.com right now. There, you can get chapter one of my book absolutely free, and there's a link to purchase the book. As I said, we have dropped the price to $4.50 for the Kindle version of my book. I know the five pillars of the freedom lifestyle will help you define, create, and start living your freedom lifestyle now. Thanks again for being a listener. I wish you a day a week, a year of freedom and abundance. And, and I, I really would love to get into touching the Jaguar, and which, as I mentioned, is really, it's an alignment. It's kind of a continuation of the story, but a lot of the things in there had took place during the time period, obviously, of confessions. Um, I should say that, you know, well, can you, touching the Jaguar, what does that mean? What what does that uh, that phrase mean for those who hadn't read the book yet? Yeah. So, Kurt, um, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer and, and deep in the Amazon rainforest, living in Shwa territory, an indigenous hunter gatherer tribe now known as a nation. 1969, I was uh, I was dying at one point. I got very, very sick. I couldn't stand up without help. I, uh, and the nearest medical facility was three days through dense jungle and awful roads up and high into the Andes to get help. And I couldn't do that. So a shaman actually saved my life. And one night, he took me on a shamanic journey. We might call it vision quest. And while I'm on that vision quest, I think my eyes are closed. I'm very, very sick. And, and I'm seeing these visions, and I see this amorphous shape in front of me, and the shaman says, touch the jaguar. Well, I look all around like, oh, my God, my eyes pop open, and like I'm in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> the jaguar. <laughs> and he says, no, 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 close your eyes, touch the jaguar you see in your vision. And so I close my eyes, this amorphous shape shifts into a jaguar, and there's a voice like my mother saying, son, it'll, the food and drink will kill you. 
And I realized at that point that, you know, I grew up in rural New Hampshire. We ate very, very mild, bland foods. Now I'm eating very strange things, you know, squirming white grubs alive like out of a rotting tree. People in the Amazon don't drink water because they know that the, the organic matters, something's in the river, the falling trees, you know, they pollute the river. So they, the women make a kind of beer called chicha by chewing and spitting the manioc root. It turns into ferments and then you can add water to the add this alcohol it's okay so you got to rehydrate in the tropics and drink a lot of that spit beer but i realized that every time i'm drinking this spit beer eating these screaming white grubs and other things i'm hearing a voice saying it'll kill you that creates a perception in me that then turns into the reality and i'm getting really sick at the same time i'm seeing how incredibly robust and and vital the, sh- the schwa, I mean, and many live to be very, very old if they don't die in a hunting accident or something like that. And, and so on this one traumatic journey, I saw that it was not the food and drink killing me. It was a, a local, organic, nutritious food. And I saw that it was my mindset. And after that, the, sh- the shaman told, told me, he said, you know, touching the jaguar means you, you face your fears. Uh, you face your barriers and, and you touch the jaguar that's standing in your way. But when you touch that jaguar and you stop running from it, you stop denying it. When you touch that jaguar, when you face your fears, when you face your barriers, suddenly you're given the, the information or the, the strength and the courage to move forward to a new reality. And he actually described it as kind of a bridge. So here's a reality, spit beer, squirming white grubs. Bridge, my perception, perception bridge is killing me. Reality, new reality, it, it, I was getting really, really sick. Change that perception to it's making me healthy like it does the schwa, and the same food and, and drink takes you to a place of health. But on that perception bridge stands a jaguar that, that at first seems to keep you from moving from the old reality to the new reality. It's the voice telling me, it'll kill you. But once you touch that, it says, hey, no, it's making these people healthy. Therefore, it's not killing you. <laughs> and we can apply that to basically everything in our lives, Kurt. And so this idea of touching the jaguar means facing our fears. And right now, this fear of change, of our, we all know, or a lot of, most everybody, I think, knows that this system isn't working. You know, the glaciers are melting, the oceans are rising, et cetera. This coronavirus is here. And, but we, we, we're afraid of change. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that I can't live, that I got to go live in a cave? No. When we touch that jaguar, the jaguar says, hey, when we change, we create a life economy. And people get paid to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to develop new technologies that use the sun and, and, and wind even better, and maybe use the air. To, we, don't, we can't even envision all the places we can go, but we can create an economic system that no longer destroys the planet, but instead regenerates it, rejuvenates it, and an economic system and it's a governmental social economic system that is itself a renewable resource. All we got to do is change that perception from maximizing short-term profits to maximizing long-term benefits for all people and nature. It's, it's, it's just a slight change in our perception of what it means to be successful human beings living on this amazing planet. And, and, and it's um, one thing I always, I always say to people is, you know, in this era of cable news, 24-7 cable news, TV, and social media, there are people who will think they're taking action 
by sitting on the couch for five hours a day and getting angry and yelling at the TV screen, right? They'll say, I'm not apathetic. I'm angry, but they don't do anything. Or they'll, they'll hit a like and a share. I call it the bot society where you substitute a like and a share for actually taking action. And, you know, what I tell people is get off the couch, go knock on doors. If it's pick a, pick a political candidate or pick a cause or pick something and go out and do something rather than I liked and I shared or I put some kind of virtue signaling thing on social media and now, now I've done my part. And looking at your life for many years, I mean, you read about it in, the, in both books, for decades, you had this feeling, we were talking before we, we, we came online here, about, uh, you know, that I had worked in the corporatocracy and for years wanted to get out. And I didn't because there's money and there's those things, but you have, mine was a fear of not having that money, right. And surviving. We have four kids, we have a house and mortgage. You had some of that, right. But over the year, your Jaguar wasn't just that it was death threats and even getting poisoned. Um, so do, do sometimes you have to touch the Jaguar <laughs> numerous times before you actually finally change the perception and make change? Well, I, I think life is about constantly facing Jaguars. <laughs> and we're always presented with the opportunity to, to, to just fall back, to break down. Or we can break through. We can touch that Jaguar and move forward. And, and whenever, we, um, whenever we break through, move forward, we rise to a new level of consciousness. And, and, and I think a new level of personal satisfaction. But then we, we move along that trail and we, we face a new Jaguar. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I love to write. So in the, in the book, I talk about, you know, the book is filled with stories, as you know, true stories, uh, narrative nonfiction about, um, about, about all of these things. But in the end, it, it presents a, 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 an approach that people can take for less than 10 minutes a day, or they can do it once a week. They don't have to do it every day. But to, for each of us to look at, at what we most want to do in our lives and what's stopping us and how do we overcome that. And it's just, basically answers five questions, which if you want, we can get into later. But um, in, every one of us is different in that regard. So a radio host like you uh, is doing an amazing job. You know, you're, you're out there. Um, trying to, you're, you're helping people understand things and, and, and raising their curiosity and, and encouraging them, inspiring them to, to change. But at the same time, I know you, of course, you've run into many Jaguars and you probably do every day. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, I ran into one today just getting on your show because the, the, this, <laughs> this platform that we're using is not Zoom and it's not Skype. And, oh. and I'm, I'm very used to those. And I had to go through it. I was a little late getting on. I've been there too late because I, I thought I was just going to get right on, but it didn't quite work quite as easily. It's a great platform. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying there was a little Jaguar to touch there. <laughs> you know, like, right. Be patient, John. You know, I was tempted to call up, pick up the phone and call you and say, what the hell do I do now? You know? <laughs> I just said, no, just, just be a little patient. Touch that Jaguar. The Jaguar says, you, you can handle this. <laughs> uh, but every day, you know, so I'm a writer. And, and there's a, you know, Confessions of an Economic Hitman was rejected by 39 publishers. Hmm. And I can say, you know, about the seventh rejection slip, I'm sort of tempted to say, screw this. Nobody likes my book. It's no good. But I didn't say that. Instead, I touched the Jaguar and the Jaguar said, hey, 
those editors, well, let's say one of them had a headache when he came to work that morning and just threw everything into the rejection pile because he felt like crap. And another one had a fight with her with her spouse at breakfast, and and she just she was just out to you know get any writer and and and, and on and on. And I, so I made up these stories that, that that made me feel good. That it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my book. It was about the editors, which in fact was true. Turns out. And as you point out, after the 39th rejection, uh, a, a small house published it, and it went to number. One, it went to onto the New York Times bestseller list almost immediately, and stayed there for seventy some odd weeks, and has sold over two million copies. But and now you know, I'm writing as I write this book. Uh, you know, every morning you get up, and I love to write. But I get up some mornings and say damn, you know, I don't know that I'm really right. Quite, you know, I'm not feeling so good. Maybe I should take the day off. And then I tell myself, no, you know, you, you just get into it, do some writing, and it may you may have to throw it out at the end of the day, but it'll be good for you. It'll be good practice. Touch that, Jaguar. Don't run from it, you know, because a writer has to write no matter what. You can't wait for inspiration. It'll never come if you wait for it. And uh, on that point, Kurt, I just say, when I teach courses in writing, I, I often tell people, and I don't know whether the numbers are correct or not, but I, I tell people it's something like, for every page I've ever written that's been published, I've probably written a thousand pages that haven't been published. Hmm. And when you think about it, a professional tennis player has practiced for a thousand hours before going on the professional circuit. And a professional pianist has practiced for a thousand hours before going and sitting in a concert hall. And the thousand may not be the right number, but it's something like that. Right, right. And, and so writers have to understand that, too. And I hear people say, well, I got to wait for inspiration. And that sometimes hits me. I get up in the morning and say, I don't feel inspired. I got to go out and touch that Jaguar. So, yes. And every day we may face some new jaguars, but every day if we touch them, they will teach us. And getting it back to your point about anger. So anger is an energy. All of our emotions, whether it's happiness or sadness or anger or whatever, they are emotions. And, and, and if you deny them, you're running from the jaguar. But if you go to them and touch them and you say, how can I use this anger to take actions It'll make me happy. It'll make me feel good about it. What do I need to do? If I'm angry, like you said, if I'm angry at who, who our senator is in my, my state or who our president is, I'm angry. So what's the point of yelling at the TV screen? Uh, yeah, send a tweet like the president yes. does. Or, you know, run a campaign or run for office. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of things we can do. But the important thing is every day to do something. Even if it's very small, like sending, uh, you know, posting something, sending a tweet, just a sentence, or very big, like running for public office. If we if we channel our, our if we recognize that our that our emotions are just plain energy, and they can be put to to use to create actions that then will change reality for us personally. We'll feel better about ourselves, and also they'll start contributing to change to moving the world in a direction that we want to move it in. It's amazing. Um, the um, I listen. I don't know if you, Dr. Bruce Lipton and Dr. Joe Dispenza. They talk a lot about uh, using your thoughts and your mind to change your physical uh, matter. I mean, Dr. Dispenza, he's a chiropractor now and speaker, was in a, a horrible car accident. Well, he was riding a bike, got hit by a SUV. And they said, you have to have all these surgeries and everything through meditation, through changing his mindset and his thoughts and his actions. He actually healed himself, that power uh, to heal himself where he thought he was dying 
going back to your experience with the shaman, that it was your mindset that actually healed something that was physical. And maybe the physical was caused by your mindset. And so that notion of changing your perception to change your physical reality, uh, not just yourself, but the people around you, you, you mentioned that um, not only to make a difference in our world, but also to make a difference in like you did to make a difference in your world, you ended up having to make a personal change in what you were doing and what you were focusing on in your life. You mentioned those five questions people can, can ask themselves every single morning uh, when they wake up. What are those? I'd love to, I'd love to get into those. Yeah. Okay. And they, and they lead to a, a little process that I probably takes maybe seven or eight minutes. I say 10 minutes, but it's, you can do it in less. But the questions that you start with are one, um, what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy? Now, for me, it's writing. I have a friend who's a car- so I'm going to use a carpenter who's a friend of mine because it's very different from a writer. For him, it's working with wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second question is uh, how do I how do I use this, this this what I want to do for bring me the greatest satisfaction? How can I also make this help somebody else? Because we all feel better if we help other people. It could be one other person, or it could be the whole world. So for me, as, as a writer, it's, I write stories that I, to inspire people to transform a death economy into a life economy. And, and for the carpenter, it's, uh, I'm going to use sustainable materials uh, because I believe in that. So the third question is, what stands in our way from doing that? What has stood in our way or what might stand in our way? What's the jaguar? What's the barrier? For a writer, it might be, well, I just don't have enough time every day to write every day. I just I don't have enough time to do that. Um, for, the, um, f- for the carpenter, it may be, well, my, my clients don't want to pay more for sustainable goods, uh, for products. I can't convince them to pay more money for sustainable products. And so you touch that Jaguar, and what's the perception you change? Well, for a writer, it might be, well, wait a minute. I could get up half an hour earlier in the morning, or I could watch half an hour or an hour or less of television at night. Or, or something along those lines, and, and put it into writing. If that's what I really want to do, that's, that's what I can do. And for the carpenter, it's like, oh, the Jaguar just told me. I tell my clients, you're, you're not, this, paying more for sustainable products is not a cost. It's an investment in the future, your future, your kid's future. You're investing in the future. And then that was, sorry, that was the fourth one. The the fifth one is what actions do we take? And for a writer, it's right, (laughs) right every day. For the carpenter, it's get out there and use sustainable materials and and tell your clients. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to give a major speech. You just let them know, hey, look, we're using these great materials. And they they cost a little bit more, but think of how grateful your kids are going to be and the lesson you're teaching them and, 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 and you're making a better world for them. And so every one of us, whether you're a plumber or a radio host or a parent, a teacher, whatever you are, you can apply this. You ask yourself these five questions. And then every day you, you take one of those actions. You commit to the action. This is part of the process. And those, especially the last three questions may change every day. So what's the Jaguar standing in, in my, my way? Uh, how do I touch that Jaguar and change my perception and what actions do I take? Those can change frequently. We can keep touching new Jaguars, uh, but it, you know, that process, if you, if you do it frequently, periodically, and again, it could be once a week, um, but keep doing it and keep taking those actions, uh, I, I guarantee you're going to have a much more satisfying life and, um, and you'll be helping other people in the process and feeling really good about it. 
I love that. Thank you for sharing those. Um, looking at, we've talked a lot about what a death economy looks like. Um, can you define for everyone, we've talked a little bit about a life economy. Looking out five or 10 years, we end up, we have more of a life economy. Can you describe what that looks like in your mind? Well, let's take some specific examples. Uh, Raytheon and, uh, and General Dynamics in a life economy, they're no longer producing missiles and aircraft carriers. <laughs> Instead, they're producing equipment that, that mines the plastic that's floating around in the oceans and recycles that. They're producing equipment that cleans up all the oil spills at gas stations all over the world and all the oil drilling sites in Ecuador and everywhere else. And uh, companies are coming up with new technologies that, that, you know, that, that make today's solar and wind look archaic. You know, we've got, you know, we've made big progress. It wasn't long ago, I think about 20 years ago, that it was $66 per kilowatt for uh, solar energy, and now it's 66 cents. So we've come a long way. But let's face it, we're still in the infancy. There's a lot to be done. So, and, and we've got people more, you know, being much more aware of what we're buying. Uh, and, we're, and, we're, and, we're, and we're insisting that the companies that we buy from uh, are, are doing a good job at working toward a, a life economy. And, and part of that involves that, I mean, if every one of your listeners, Kurt, picks a company they want to see change, it could be Exxon or it could be Walmart or, or any company. Pick a company that, you, that you'd like to see change and, and write a, a post or a tweet, an, an email, however you want to do it, and say something like, hey, I love your products. Don't, don't badmouth them. I love your products. Start off with that. But I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers in India a fair wage, or you stop polluting with this and that glues that you're using, or whatever the issue is, and send that to them, and also send it to all your social networking circles. Ask them to send that the same message out, and ask them to send out, ask all their social networking circles to send it out. And I got to say, Kurt, I speak at a lot of big international economic forums. I was recently speaking at one in St. Petersburg, Russia, 12,000 people, including presidents of big U.S. banks and big U.S. corporations. This was not limited to the Russians, although President Putin was there. And so, so was Secretary General of, of the, of the uh, United Nations, uh, Guterres. Uh, many amazing people. And when I met with CEOs during receptions, well, the Russians love, <laughs> love their vodka. <laughs> reception, and, well, yeah, I wasn't drinking much vodka, but wine, they had a lot of wine too. And, and, and these executives would tell me, you know, I, I love what you're saying and, and I want my company to be greener. I get kids, I get grandchildren, but I know that if I lose half a percentage of market share, my, my main stockholders will fire me and replace me with someone who only cares about market share. And so please have everybody that you talk to send me and my company emails or tweets or whatever saying exactly what I just said. Uh, we love your product, but do such and such to make it better. And I say with these, with 100,000 of these, I can go to our top investors and say, hey, we've got to listen to our customers. So, Kurt, you know, all of us can play that role. And in, in, in this, this future life economy, we will only be supporting companies that are working that are working very diligently toward creating a life economy. They're based, basing themselves not on short-term maximization of profits, but rather on paying investors to invest in things that create long-term benefits for all of us and for all of nature. It's, it's interesting, you know, in the book, there, there's a lot of people who, who um, uh, 
I think, use the, these terms wrong. Capitalism and free market. And you know, you write in the book about starting a, a small what credit and loan operation in the middle of the jungle and people trading, you know, in a free market, it's cooperation. You have something of value that I want more than you want this, and we and we trade. And a lot of people have come to think of capitalism as something that is more like what you describe in the book. But you write in the book, that's not that's not actually capitalism, right? It's people putting their, the, whether it's the governments in line with the corporations putting their hand on the scale, which is not true capitalism, certainly not a free market. There's a, there's a movie called Poverty Inc. It's several years old. And actually it, it's interesting because it talks about uh, many of these, uh, uh, there are some international groups, I, I, I guess they're charities, but, but, but also large corporations who do things like it's a shoe company that every shoe you buy sends free shoes to South America. Mm-hmm. And it actually talked about the fact that it's putting South American entrepreneurs out of business mm-hmm. because we flooded the market and it talked about Haiti, how we signed a bill basically to help farmers here. I guess it's a, the farmerocracy, not the corporateocracy to flood Haiti with rice, cheap rice. And it put all these Haitian rice farmers out of business and, but our people got it. And, and so it's so interesting, right? I guess it goes back to perception. We hear a word like capitalism, we think it's this, but you've, you've experienced it. I mean, you've seen it, right? There, there's capitalism that can happen in the midst of a jungle that has nothing to do with a corporation because it's based on voluntary cooperation. Right. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction that uh, the, 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 the true definition of capitalism is, and you can look it up, it's in my book, I, I quote some of you know, yeah. the, the dictionaries, uh, an economic system whereby the uh, means of production and commerce are not, are not owned by the government, they're owned by private individuals, and it's based on very healthy competition. Uh, and, and of course, we know that today our, our, the capitalism we have is not owned by the government in the United States, but the capitalists own the government. So we've we've reversed that in a way, you know, that nobody gets elected president of the United States without huge support from very wealthy people who get their money from corporations or, or, or directly from corporations. Corporation lobbyists have tremendous in, influence, undue influence on, on our governmental system. So so we've reversed that one. But it, we also don't really have a very competitive system. And, and on, on a local level, there may, you know, maybe be two bookstores or two, or two, you know, coffee shops that are sort of competing with each other, but they're doing it on a friendly basis. But overall, they have a very hard time competing when a Starbucks comes into the, the community. And you can say the same for... Um, um, you know, any of our big box uh, restaurant chains or you know, the, the retail establishments, the, the Walmarts, et cetera, uh, they're oligarchies and, and often monopolies. And so we have what, what economists refer to as a predatory form of capitalism, a form of capitalism that is not really based on on uh, on free markets. It's not really based on competition. It's based on consolidation and on destroying your competitors if that's what seems to be necessary. And again, you know, there, there are exceptions, but that's the overall global system that we have today. It's a, it's a terribly, terribly small group of people, with corporatocracy, uh, that control it. And, you know, the thing you mentioned about Haiti and, and rice and NAFTA, CAFTA, the f- free trade agreements have put made this happen. So it's also true in Mexico and throughout Central America that that people who, the little farmer who used to produce corn 
and uh, other products uh, can no longer afford to do it because our big agribusinesses are heavily, heavily subsidized, and they can sell corn and other such things in Mexico and Guatemala and elsewhere cheaper than the local people can produce it there, even though here in the United States they're producing at huge losses. But they're being subsidized by the American taxpayer. And we can say that's we can say we're good. Well, we're giving them cheaper corn. But the fact of the matter is we're driving their people to have to migrate to the United States or want to migrate here because they can't they can't make a living in their own countries because they've been taken out by big ag big, big agriculture. So I'd love to finish the interview talking about the two organizations I mentioned in uh, the introduction, and that's Dream Change and the Pachamama. Am I pronouncing it correct? Pachamama Alliance. Uh, yeah. You write a lot about Pachamama Alliance. You write uh, a little less, I guess. Maybe maybe that's just my perception of Dream Change. Can you tell us more about those and, and how people listening, watching can uh, get involved and support them? Yeah, these are both uh, nonprofits that I founded or co-founded in, in the in case of Dream Change in the late eight, in the eighties and in, in Pachamama Alliance in the mid nineties with Don and Lynn Twist, and they're both organizations that are really aimed at changing the perception of the world from this one that backs a death economy to one that backs a a life economy. Uh, we, we like to say that our mission is to create a, an environmentally sustainable. Uh, uh, so socially just human presence on this planet, and um, so these are these and, and these organizations now are in about ninety countries around the world, helping to change the dream, as well as working with the indigenous people in, in the Amazon to help keep the oil companies out, to help protect their, their lands. It's it's it's, a, it's both. You know, the indigenous people themselves have told us it's not just enough to fight the oil companies and the mining companies. Here, you get we've got to fight the dream of your people, and mm-hmm. by that they mean dream change is all about changing perception. You know, the dream can be translated as to perception that changes reality and people can find out about them well the best thing to do is go to my website johnperkins.org everything is there put your put your email in a little box so you'll get a, a newsletter every uh, month or so that uh, tells you where i'll be speaking and how people how i might get together with people as well as i think some sometimes some interesting comments um and um, you can also go to pachamama.org or dreamchange.org both of those have websites yeah, and so those are great organizations, but you know everybody out there needs to look at what 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 do you most want to do? You know, and I, again I say you know if you've got a specific corporation you want to change, work for that work on that corporation. If you've got some movement like helping the Amazonian people or changing the dream of the modern world, then go to Dream Change or or Pachamama dot org. Um, but the important thing is to take take a little action. Every day, we live in a blessed time where the the Earth is really speaking to us. The, the once in one hundred year events, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, the fires, and now the coronavirus and the disruption around police brutality and white privilege and and racial discrimination. These are all symptoms of of, of a disease that's that's in the process of of wiping us off this planet. And that disease is the death economy. So if we all take our individual courses, whether a writer or a carpenter or a host of, of, of a radio show or, or a podcast or a parent, whatever we are, we can all go different paths. But if all of our paths lead to the same destination of transforming a failing system into a successful one, we'll get there. We'll make it. And we're blessed. We're all blessed to be alive at this time when we have this opportunity. 
Well, John Perkins, thanks so much for joining us today. Everyone, please go check out John's newest book, Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Kurt. Thank you for having me on your show and also for all that you're doing. Keep up your great work. I love what you do and deeply, deeply appreciate you and, and the Freedom and freedom Media and all that you're doing. Appreciate that very much. Thank you. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. <laughs>